I'd like to welcome everyone to the last of this year's uh, President's Lectures. I'm particularly delighted that Vince Poor, Professor of Electrical Engineering, has agreed to give today's lecture. I've asked his colleague, uh, Professor Stu Schwartz, to introduce Professor Poor, but before he does, I would like to just say a few words by way of introduction of Professor Schwartz. <laughs> Well, I know there is an infinite series here that we could just continue on infinitum, but yes. Stu Schwartz came to the university after receiving his doctoral degree from the University of Michigan in 1966. In the intervening 37 years, he has played a central role in shaping the engineering school and his department of electrical engineering. From 1985 until 1994, he served as chair of the department and helped it to grow from a department of 13 to 24 members. He was associate dean of the School of Engineering from 1977 to 1980, and he currently serves as director of the new, and in part thanks to his efforts, highly successful Master of Engineering program. He founded POEM, an exciting multidisciplinary research center in photonics and optoelectronic materials uh, that has become uh, one of the most vibrant research centers in the university. Professor Schwartz's own general research interests lie in the area of statistical communication theory and signal and image processing. He's contributed to our understanding of discrete time estimator correlators, which I'm sure you all know what that is. <laughs> adaptive and robust detection procedures, mobile telephones, and time delay estimation. He and his colleagues seek in part to address the difficult technical challenges in wireless communication that all of us with mobile phones may experience on a daily basis. Everything from the number of users to the geographical terrain to the many different kinds of traffic that current networks have to handle can amplify problems such as signal fading. Stu and his colleagues are studying a variety of techniques to mitigate these problems. On another front, Professor Schwartz is leading a project called QIP, which stands for Quick Image Processing Procedures. QIP is developing devices and programming procedures that will automatically and rapidly distinguish people from a background of other objects which seems like a very important thing to do to me. This is an outgrowth of his longstanding interest in the area of detection and estimation theory, which looks for ways to discern signals and patterns from a background of noise. For example, how to identify submarines from hundreds of miles away by distinguishing the sound they make from the rest of the noise in the ocean. Overall, he has been a leading force in the field of electrical engineering on and off campus in the United States and abroad. But finally, I suspect that almost everyone in this audience knows Stu through his many contributions to service to the broader university community. It is rumored that Stu has served more times on the Committee of Three, the Committee of Appointments and Promotions, than any other living member of the faculty. <laughs> I can tell you 
that my first year as chair of that committee was made much easier by having a veteran like Stu sitting just to my left. He's also known as a wonderful mentor of faculty and students as well as junior presidents. Stu, today's introduction gives me a chance to thank you in public for everything you have done and I know continue to do for Princeton. Stu. Thank you very much, President Feldman. Um, what an honor and genuine pleasure it is for me to introduce to you today Professor H. Vincent Poor from the Electrical Engineering Department. Vince is a former graduate student, a professional colleague, a fellow departmental member, and a friend. As a graduate student, he arrived here in September 1974. <laughs> <laughs> He graduated Auburn with highest honors in 74 and came to Princeton. The first day I saw this young graduate student in the E-Quad, I thought perhaps he was lost and was really looking for the comp lit department. <laughs> but actually he was in the right department and he was a super student. He took a couple of courses from me. In January 1975, I was teaching a linear systems theory course, which all first-year graduate students took. There were 15 students, and you see Harold V. Poor, although we only call him Vince, not Harold. Vince Poor got an A. <laughs> uh, there are a few other A's. Christos Papadimitriou got an A, and he's at faculty at Berkeley. Fred Minza is a uh, department head at IBM. He got an A. So there were a few that got A's. Vince was among the best. Uh, Dean Nancy Malkiel, I guess, is not here, but she would be happy, I think, with these videos. <laughs> Especially in light of the recent memo she sent us. But actually, the development office was not happy at all. This young man who got a D turned out to be a venture capitalist, a very successful venture capitalist. <laughs> And the development office was interested in him for the obvious reason. They were slightly dismayed when I told them he got a D in this course. <laughs> At his research seminar in the department, which is really more like a thesis proposal, Vince basically had half a thesis done. And he's the kind of student that makes the faculty feel that they came to the right place to teach and do research. He graduated in 1977. Now, that, if you notice, was three years. It's so not a record in the department, but it was pretty good. And he then uh, went on to an academic career starting at the University of Illinois in uh, Urbana-Champaign. Urbana and he arrived there in 77, and he quickly rose through the ranks. And in 81, he was promoted to associate professor. And in 84, he was promoted to a full professor. That's seven years from assistant to full that's pretty good by Committee of Three Standards, I would say. And here we see Vince uh, trimmed back on his hair and his beard, and this befitting... 
week. <laughs> well, befitting a tenured faculty member, he looked quite quaffed. While at Illinois, he quickly made a reputation for, for himself both on campus and in the professional community. At Illinois, he was a Beckman Associate at the Center for Advanced Study, a research professor at Coordinated Science Lab, which is a very highly regarded research facility at Illinois, and of course he was one of the stars of the uh, electrical engineering department. As a professional colleague, he is very well known for his many contributions to statistical signal processing, and in particular, applications, communications, and especially wireless communications. His resume lists well over 110 articles in archival journals, more than 230 contributions to conferences, at least 10 invited journal articles, 14 plenary and keynote addresses at major meetings. He's contributed chapters to 18 books, and he's edited himself six books. And of course, he's the author of An Introduction to Signal Detection and Estimation, published in 1988 with a second edition in 1994. This is simply the standard textbook for graduate courses in detection and estimation, and a full generation of students have learned from this book, both here and abroad. For his uh, professional contributions in research, and for his contributions to education and pedagogy, he has received many, many honors and recognitions. The first one I'll mention is he, he is the recipient of the NSF Director's Award for Distinguished Teaching Scholars. This is in recognition of outstanding contributions to science, mathematics, and engineering research, an exemplary achievement in the education of undergraduate students. Not to be outdone, he also has won the IEEE Graduate Teaching Award for exemplary teaching, inspired guidance of graduate students, and contributions to graduate education in statistical signal processing. He's a fellow of the IMS, Institute of Mathematical Statistics, fellow of the Optical Society of America, especially for his contributions in optical co-division multiple access networks. He's also won the Distinguished Member Award from the IEEE Control Systems Society in recognition of exceptional service to the society and the profession. He's the recipient of the American Society of Engineering Education Terman Award in recognition for his outstanding contributions in the fields of communications, control, and signal processing through education, research, and public service, and for his exceptional authorship. And the award says specifically for his textbook, An Introduction to Signal Detection and Estimation. He's a fellow of the ASA, the AAAS, the fellow of the IEEE, which is our own professional society, the Institute for Elec Electrical and Electronics Engineers. And there the citation reads, for contributions to the theory of robust linear filtering applied to signal detection and estimation. He was elected to the National Academy uh, of Engineering for contributions to signal detection and estimation and their applications in digital communications and signal processing. <laughs> the department had a little ceremony in 2001 when he was elected, and here, and the citation for contributions to detection and estimation, and there's also this cryptic fathering the roots of the wireless revolution. Uh, this slide was actually prepared by Jim Sturm, uh, so let me acknowledge that. But Jim needed some help because I knew of some of Vince's publications, 
And Vint started working on wireless communications very early in the early 80s. Uh, and some noteworthy papers were the uh, direct sequence, spread spectrum, multiple access communications and impulsive channels in 88. The nonlinear techniques for interference suppression in spread spectrum systems, 1990. But the real roots in the fathering occurred when <laughs> his daughters, Kristen and Lauren, turned 13, and Vince, strong advocate he is of wireless, immediately gave them cellular phones. <laughs> and you notice that the revenue took an upward slope here and here. So, so indeed, he is truly the father of wireless communications. And the last honor I'll mention, and I haven't exhausted the list, is next year he'll be on sabbatical as a Guggenheim Fellow studying quantum communications. Okay, for, he has contributed much service to his professional society, the IEEE, serving as president of the IEEE Information Theory Society, the awards board. He served on the IEEE Board of Governors. He was a member of the Fellow Evaluation Committee. He served on the Edison Medal Committee, just, just to name a few of them. Professionally, he is usually on the top of everyone's list of potential speakers for plenary or keynote, keynote talks. Being such a nice guy who does not know how to say no, he is also on everyone's list to help in organizing workshops and technical meetings, and the list is substantial. The, the conferences he's organized, the technical sessions he's organized. When his advisor at Princeton, John Thomas, retired, it was natural for us to turn to Vince as a replacement. We were delighted that we were able to convince his wife, Connie, to return. And he returned in 1990. Now you notice he's really cut back on his beard. <laughs> so we, we are delighted that we convinced Connie to come. And I also thank Connie for some of the pictures. <laughs> Since returning in 1990, he has served the department, the electrical engineering department, as an undergraduate representative for a year, director of graduate studies for two years, associate chair for three years. He holds affiliated faculty positions with the Department of Operations, Research, and Financial Engineering and the Program in Applied and Computational Mathematics. He has taught in the department naturally a course in detection and estimation theory, ELE 530, and Random Processes in Information Systems, ELE 525, and the Senior Course in Communications, ELE 485. Recently, he has introduced two new courses, a graduate-level course, Wireless Communications, Signal Processing Principles, and the famous ELE 391, The Wireless Revolution, Telecommunications for the 21st Century. Let me tell you a little bit about the course, Just spend a minute. This is a course given in the spring semester. There are about 250 students in it. And basically, the motivation is students are very interested in wireless communications. I think Vince will show you a slide later where the college students have more wireless phones than uh, wired phones. The prerequisite is only freshman, uh, freshman calculus. And we can thank the college and Princeton's 250th anniversary fund for innovation in undergraduate education for initially funding it. Then Vince went out and got some of his own funding from the NSF Distinguished Teacher Scholars Program. The course covers, as you might expect, digital technology, 
wireless technology, digital transmission. But half the course involves guest lectures from industry finance where they discuss economic business aspects, social dimensions. And so Vince has invited psychologists, sociologists in to talk about wireless communications and politics. What's interesting, this is a perfect course for Princeton. Here you can see this is the, the distribution of majors. Um, this is electrical engineering. This is economics majors in the course. This is Orphe. This is politics, computer science, history, psychology, other AB departments, and other BSE departments. Well, if you swap economics with computer science, you'll see this is bigger than this. The more than half the students in this course are non-engineering majors. Now, when Vince was uh, organizing the course at first, um, I said, gee, Vince, you're doing all this work, and you probably get 10 or 20 students. Well, I was wrong by a factor of 10. And in the spring of 00, you can do it a little bit more, sir. In the spring of 00, he had 114 students. Next semester, next year, he had 181 students. He really got the kinks out of the course after giving it twice. The third time he gave it, he had 247 students. I looked at that trend and I extrapolated, and I said he was going to have over up here 350 students. As it turned out, he went off the linear trend, and he has a modest 276 students, which is a nice 30-student increase over 247. It turns out here he was probably one of the biggest courses at the university. Here there's a molecular biologist who's teaching a course to over 300 students, and there's also a, um, another course in the Department of Religion that has 300. But for an engineering-originated course to have... 250-some students just says something about the capabilities of uh, our speaker today. Today's lecture is entitled, Anytime, Anywhere, The Wireless Revolution. Now, Vince may try to get his whole course into a one-hour lecture. <laughs> Knowing Vince, I am sure he will succeed. I introduce to you my colleague, friend, and former graduate student, Professor Vince Bohr. Well, good afternoon. Thank you all for coming out in the spring thaw to be here today. Uh, after that, I don't know if I'm going to be able to live up to, uh, to the, uh, the hype, but I'll try. Uh, Stu, thank you very much uh, for that introduction. You're eloquent as always. Um, the pictures I'm not so sure about, but I'll talk to Connie about that later. Um, the, uh, you know, when I first came to Princeton 30 years ago, almost 30 years ago, uh, you know, you were one of the first people I met here, and you've always been part of the human face of Princeton to me. So it's particularly meaningful for you to do this today. Thank you. Um, President Tillman, thank you very much for the invitation. It's, of course, a singular honor. Um, I've been looking forward to this essentially every minute since uh, you invited me last summer. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So, so now let's talk about wireless, and I do have to get my entire course in this, so um, I hope no one has dinner plans. 
Actually, my talk should be about an hour, so there should be some time at the end for, for, talk, for uh, questions. Um, the first thing I'll say about wireless is that it's, wireless communications is one of the most uh, active areas of technology development today. Uh, every day, roughly a half a million people sign up for cellular service uh, worldwide. Every day, more than a billion text messages are sent from cell phone to cell phone worldwide. Um, the growth rate in cellular in some parts of the world is as high as 80% a year. Similarly, the growth rate in other wireless technologies that I'm going to talk about today is sometimes 80 to 100% per year uh, worldwide. So, um, you know, of course, we all know that we're in the middle of an economic downturn, and you know, no sector really has been hit worse than the information technology sector. And within information technology, of course, telecommunications is also... Uh, one of the hardest hit areas. So you might ask the question, why is it that in this kind of economic climate, a technology like wireless is doing so well? Uh, and the answer is, at least in part, that we're in the middle of a revolution. It's a technological revolution, and wireless is offering things to people that they, they really want to have. Uh, and so that's what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to talk about this revolution. Uh, I'm going to talk about four things. First of all, I'm going to, for the benefit of those of you who aren't uh, experts in this area, I'm going to say a little bit about what wireless is and why it's important. Why am I here uh, talking about it today? Um, and secondly, I'm going to say something about the landscape in wireless today, that is, um, what's happening right now. After that, I'm going to talk a bit about uh, some of the challenges that come up in wireless uh, because of the growth that I've talked about and also because of the development of new services that, that I'll also talk about today. And then finally, I'll wrap up with a sort of brief discussion of what's on the horizon. That is, what's, what's happening, going to happen next. So, um, again, uh, a lot of you will be relieved to know that this talk is not going to be very technical. Uh, I will talk about a few technical things when I talk about some of the challenges, but I'll, I'm going to try to keep the technical aspect of the talk uh, at a minimum. So why don't we start out with this, these two questions. What is wireless and why should we care? And to sort of introduce the subject, I'll start out talking about some communication networks that are, should be familiar to all of us. Uh, wireless systems, of course, are communication networks. And uh, here are three sort of ba very basic types of computer network, uh, sorry, communication networks that really touch us almost every day. First of all, telephone networks. Uh, if you look at a sort of a plain old telephone network, the kind you have, the old-fashioned kind, not the cellular network, the way it works basically is when you make a call from your house, there's a pair of copper wires that connects your phone to what's called a branch exchange. Uh, in, in Princeton, the branch exchange is just on Olden Street, just up the street here. And um, at the branch exchange, your voice is digitized, and it's sent through a high-speed switching network to the branch exchange of the person you're calling where the voice is reconstituted and sent out to their phone. So the telephone network is what's called a circuit switch network. And it's a lot like a conversation in the sort of classical sense in that when you talk to somebody on the phone, you're connected all the time. So when you, when you talk, they hear you immediately and they can respond immediately. Now computer networks are in some ways similar to telephone networks, in some ways distinct. The basic element of a telephone network, or sort of the end point of a telephone network, is the branch exchange with all the telephones attached. Um, in a computer network, the corresponding element is what's called a local area network. So a local area network is just a relatively small computer network 
network of computers and peripherals and things like that, uh, which is uh, all basically sharing the same communication medium. So a local area network would be about the size of a building, typically. Now, traffic goes from local area network to local area network, again, over a high-speed digital network. This one, which is slightly different, it's a network that's so-called packet switch network. That is, when you send a message from one computer to another, it's broken down into small pieces called packets, and those packets are stamped with an address, and they're sent out into this packet switching network where they're individually routed to their destination. So a computer network is more like a postal system than it is like a conversation. That is, um, you post your messages into the computer, they go to the destination, and they sit there until they're read by the, the uh, person they're addressed to. And then finally, broadcast networks are another very common kind of communication network. And take, for example, a television network. Uh, content is produced in places like Los Angeles or New York, and it's distributed, again, over a very high-speed network to television stations. And from television stations, it's in broadcast to um, television sets, that is, people out in the um, viewing area. So um, this is more or less, so w two distinctions between broadcast networks and the other two networks is, first of all, the same content, in a broadcast network, the same content is sent to everyone. And secondly, it's one, typically one directional, that is, uh, in, in computer networks and telephone networks, there's two directional communication, and broadcast network is typically one way. So a broadcast network is more or less like a, a newspaper. Um, reporters write stories, say for the New York Times, the editors put it together, they print it, and they send the same edition out to everyone. So these are, these are what communication networks, how communication networks are organized. What about wireless? Well, um, Princeton's most famous resident weighed in on wireless uh, a long time ago when asked about the wireless telegraph, which was the wireless revolution of of his era. So 100 years ago, there was another wireless revolution. And uh, Einstein always got to the point, and here he said, as, as it's, you, everybody's read it by now, but the ordinary telegraph is like a very long cat. You pull the tail in New York, and it meows in Los Angeles. The wireless telegraph is the same, only without the cat. <laughs> so this is really, you know, Einstein was a very smart man, and this really goes to the essence of what wireless is. Wireless networks are really the same as wireline networks or, or these other networks, except some part of the network has been, in some part of the network, the wires have been replaced with a wireless link. Okay? And typically, the, the link that's been replaced is the last link. That is, the link between the end user, the person using a telephone, computer, or what have you, and some access point to a more complex network. So a wireless usually is not a wireless network is not all typically not all wireless. Most of the network is actually wireline. The infrastructure is wireline. In the, in the in the telephone or computer network, the infrastructure is is basically fiber optics. So engineers call this back, this infrastructure the backbone of the network. But from the point of view of the user, this last link is really the most important part because by being, making that link wireless, it affords mobility portability, and ease of connectivity. That is, freedom. You can take your communications with you wherever you go. Okay, that's what basically what wireless is to people who use it. Okay, they don't care about all the detection estimation theory and so forth. They only care about this. Uh, as an example, most people, are, when they think of wireless, they probably think of cellular telephony. And just as an example, I'll illustrate how uh, cellular telephony system is set up. 
say if you're Verizon and you'd like to provide cell service to some area like New Jersey, then the way uh, you do that is to break it up into smaller areas called cells. These are typically a few miles across. Uh, and in the middle of each cell, you put a what's called a base station. It's a tower with an antenna and a receiver and a transmitter. So when you're talking on your cell phone, uh, you're actually communicating by wireless link, that is radio, from your cell phone to the tower, the base station, the tower at the base station. Then the base station is connected to what's called a mobile switching center, um, which acts like a branch exchange. It, it takes the calls out of the cells that it manages and puts them into the uh, public switch telephone network, for, at which point they're like any other telephone call. Okay. Now, the cellular concept is very simple, and it has a lot of advantages, which is why it's been very successful. The main advantages are, first, that because the cells are small, the cell phones, the mobile phones, can transmit at very low power, okay? uh, which, is, which is advantageous. And secondly, uh, because there are many cells, you can reuse the frequencies over and over again throughout the state. So you don't have to use them just once in New Jersey. You can use them in every cell. And I'm going to talk about these issues again later. Okay, well, that's basically what wireless is very briefly. And now let me talk about why we should care. So first of all, wireless is part of the telecommunications industry. Telecommunications is one of the largest industries in the world. It's about a trillion dollar a year business. Uh, and to put that in perspective, that's roughly the gross domestic product of a country like France or Italy or the UK. So it's a, there's a lot of money in telecommunications. Now, wireless is a significant part of that. In fact, today there are more cellular telephone subscriptions than there are ordinary wireline telephone subscriptions in the world. And that happened about a year ago. The crossover happened about a year ago. I'll say something about that again later. Uh, moreover, there are uh, many, many people involved. There are more than a billion cellular subscribers worldwide today. So there's a lot of people, a lot of money and a lot of people. Uh, also, technically, wireless is very interesting. There are many new uh, services coming out. There's a lot of innovation. So for, as a technology, it's very innovative and very uh, rapidly developing, as I said earlier. It also has political consequences. It uses a public resource. It uses the radio spectrum, which is owned by the public. So it it, the public has an interest in what happens in wireless, and I'll, I'm going to talk more about this later. It also has a role in the developing world. Uh, as we'll see later. Um, there are countless applications. Almost every field of endeavor has some application of wireless in it. Uh, and finally, one of the big things, which is one of the main drivers for the growth in, in wireless and, and, uh, and cellular and other kinds of wireless te technologies, is convergence with the Internet. And I'll, I'll say some more about that later. Okay, so that's really that's the motivational part of the talk. And uh, now I want to talk a little bit about the landscape in wireless today. What's going to happen next? Sorry, what's happening now? Excuse me. And uh, I'm going to talk mainly about two things. I'm going to talk about cellular. Uh, and then I'm also going to talk about something called Wi-Fi. And then at the end, I'll talk about a couple of other things briefly. So first of all, uh, this is uh, a chart that shows, you know, I, I mentioned that there are more cellular subscribers in the world and there are ordinary telephone subscribers. And this just shows, this chart, sort of a historical chart that shows when that started happening. And I guess now I know that it was because my daughter turned 13. I thought there was another reason actually. But, uh, but you, this shows, the, the yellow line here is the number of new 
mobile telephone subscriptions added per year, uh, mobile meaning cellular. The red line is the number of fixed or wireline subscriptions added per year. And you can see that long, around about the mid-90s, mid all of a sudden cellular started taking off. And if we look at the, and I should say that cellular was uh, originally uh, rolled out in this country and most of the world early in the 1980s, early to mid-1980s. So if you look over the entire history of cellular, you can see that it, this is really an exponential, right? You can see that it started growing fairly slowly and then about 95, mid-90s, it just exploded. Until in 2002, uh, the number of cellular subscribers surpassed the number of wireline subscribers. At that point, there were about 1.1 billion in the world. Today, there are about 1.2 billion cellular subscribers in the world. So another trend in cellular is that it's global. Uh, this, shows over the last, this shows cellular growth over the last few years divided up by region of the world. And you can see that most of the cellular subscribers are in three places, North America, uh, Western Europe, and Asia. Uh, but look at the other places that, that are shown here, Eastern Europe, Africa, the Middle East. You can see that the growth rates are very large in those parts of the world. Okay? So there's really global reach here, and it's becoming more and more globalized as time goes on. The growth rate in Europe is actually, you'll notice, is actually quite small, and there's a good reason for that. That's because the market penetration of cellular in Europe is getting close to 90%. There aren't really that many more people to sell cell phones to. You know, when you think that a lot of them are five years old, uh, by the time you give all the teenagers and adult cell phones, you've got probably 90% of the people. Um, now, an interesting thing about cellular as a technology is that it's said to be a technology that blows from east to west. And what that means is if you... Uh, most of us are used to thinking about technologies being uh, invented in the U.S. and adopted here first, and then sort of traveling out and migrating to other parts of the world. Well, cellular didn't happen that way. Although a lot of cellular was invented, a lot of, a lot of it was invented right at Bell Labs here in New Jersey, um, it actually was not adopted very heavily in the U.S. first. It was really adopted heavily in Western Europe first. And so you can see that in Western Europe... Uh, particularly the Nordic countries, actually, were, were really early adopters. But in Western Europe, the penetration rates are very high of cellular. Uh, in the U.S., it's about 50% now, okay? Uh, which, okay, and you can see Japan is actually slightly higher. But another interesting data point here is over here, China, okay? The cellular penetration rate in China, this was mid-2002, it was about 12% then. It's about 16% now. But even at that... Uh, China is the largest cellular market in the world, and it's because it's 16% of 1.2 billion people. And moreover, the growth rate of cellular in China is about 40% per year. So uh, clearly, that's where the action is in, in, in wireless, or at least in cellular, is in, is in Asia. Now, another country that's not shown here is India. The penetration of cellular in India is just a few percent, 2 or 3%. But the growth rate of cellular in India is about 80% a year. So there's another billion-person country with an enormous number of potential customers. Okay, so Asia is sort of east to west. West here actually means Asia because we started in Europe. Okay. Uh, another trend, as, as Stu mentioned, uh, in cellular is youth. Uh, like many technologies, 
cellular has been adopted more uh, aggressively by the young than by, by the not-so-young. And uh, this, there are many statistics that illustrate this, but I picked this one because it's college students. And this is from an article in the New York Times uh, a, couple, a few weeks ago. Uh, and basically, it shows the number of college students in the U.S., or the percentage of college students in the U.S. who have cell phones. And you can see, this is over a four-year period beginning four years ago this spring. And you can see that the, the growth rate has been very rapid. About four years ago, 25% of college students had cell phones, and now about 70% do. Okay, And this is true across all, not just college students, but all people in this demographic, really. Uh, now, at the same time, the number of students having conventional long-distance service has declined. And this is actually something that's happened also in the general population. Finally, uh, one more cellular trend is that it's become, the cellular networks are uh, increasingly becoming data networks. And I'm going to talk a lot more about this later, but I'll just point out a couple of things here. We think most of us think of our cell phone as something to talk on, but in fact, uh, increasingly, it's, it's something to use for other purposes: text messaging, sending images, what have you. And, and I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the talk this billion messages a day that is being sent, are being sent on cell phones, and this chart here shows roughly how that came about. Uh, three years ago. There are only about four billion a month worldwide. These are text messages. Uh, now there are about a billion a day. Okay, so text messaging has grown very, very rapidly. Now it's not so in the U.S. It's not so commonly used, but in, in other parts of the world, it's very common. Text messaging is very common. Now text messaging is a sort of a low tech kind of an application. It's low bandwidth. It doesn't really take a lot of fancy uh, technology to do text messaging. So it's low, low tech, high volume. Now, sort of at the other end of the spectrum is mobile gaming, okay? And here's a chart. I don't know how accurate this chart is, but I put it in here because uh, it shows the kind of numbers that people think about when they're thinking about mobile gaming. Mobile gaming means playing computer games with your cell phone, okay, with other people on their cell phones, for example, okay? Now, uh, the thing about gaming is that even in the, in the ordinary computer world, of course, gaming, computer games... Uh, drove a lot of technology development, particularly in graphics, okay? So this is a very high-tech kind of technology. And so even though there's not that many people involved, probably not that much money involved, uh, this will probably drive a lot of the technology development in, in uh, cell phones, okay? And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later. If you, uh, you might have seen about a month ago, Nokia, the huge, the largest cell phone manufacturer in the world, just announced a, a product called Engage, uh, which is a combination cell phone and computer gaming platform. So we'll see how this works. Okay, well now I want to switch uh, from cellular to nomadic computing. And I'm going to talk in particular about uh, a technology called Wi-Fi. So as you might imagine, Wi-Fi is short for wireless fidelity. And it's, it, this is a popular name for what engineers call IEEE 802.11. <laughs> you can see why they didn't use that in marketing. Engineers liked it, though, I'll tell you that. Uh, but uh, basically, it's a very simple idea. You know, I mentioned the local area network being the basic element of a computer network. And the basic idea of Wi-Fi is that you take a local area network and you just replace the wires with radio links. So you take a wife, an access point, connect it into the network, and then you put radio cards, so-called network infrastructure cards, in, in the computers and laptops, and they can then be on the network without 
having to be connected by wire. Okay? Now, um, this is a very simple idea. Technologically, it wasn't quite so simple to produce the kind of data rates that these uh, devices produce, which is, could be 10 megabits per second up to 50 megabits per second. At the cost for which they're, they're sold is really a sort of a technological marvel. Okay, but, but conceptually, it's very, very simple, and it's an idea that is caught on uh, like gangbusters. Uh, if you read almost every day in the newspaper, I'm always scanning for wireless news there, and uh, I always see almost daily some company that's announced they're going to put Wi-Fi in their establishment. Marriott Hotels last week, Starbucks already has Wi-Fi. I think British Airways and Lufthansa have Wi-Fi in flight. Uh, a lot of cities now are starting to put Wi-Fi networks downtown as a way of uh, attracting business development. Okay. So uh, Wi-Fi is, uh, is really big, and it's getting really big fast, bigger fast. So here's just, uh, again, a chart to show sort of the growth in Wi-Fi over the last, over, this is over five quarters ending last uh, third quarter. And you can see that year on year here from third quarter 01 to third quarter 02, the growth rate in Wi-Fi products, these are millions of units shipped, uh, was almost 100%. Okay? And uh, this is projected just to be the beginning of sort of a huge trend. Uh, this is a, these are forecasts, of course. They may not be accurate, but you just see what people are thinking now. And certainly, if you see all the, the buzz about this, you can expect that over the coming few years, uh, Wi-Fi is going to become an enormous uh, technology. Okay, well, let me talk about a couple of other technologies just very briefly before I go on to the next part of the talk. Computer networks are often characterized according to scale. So there's local area network, that's one scale. Um, the cellular network is, is what's called a wide area network. It covers the whole country or really the whole world. But there are other network scales that are interesting and have their own technologies. And one scale is what's called a personal area network or a PicoNet. Okay? Now a personal area network would be something like the size of your room or your office, small network like that. And an interesting technology in that area is, what's, is, a, is a technology called Bluetooth. So Bluetooth is basically a radio on a chip. It's a small, low-power, low-cost uh, chip that can be used for relatively high data rate communications, roughly 750 kilobits per second. Uh, and the idea behind Bluetooth is that it's cheap enough that you can put it in just about anything. Okay? You can put it in your cell phone, your PDA. You can put it in almost any kind of device that has electricity running to it. And this allows you to do, without wires, to do personal area networking. You, can, you, know, you walk into your office in the morning and your PDA can sync to your desktop, that kind of thing. Uh, you might be wondering why it's called Bluetooth. It's called Bluetooth. It's named after this guy, Harold Bluetooth. No, no relation. Um, Harold Bluetooth was a Scandinavian king from the Middle Ages. He unified Norway and Denmark sometime in the 11th or 12th century. Now, Bluetooth was, uh, was produced by a consortium of about 100 wireless companies. And uh, the, the company that organized this and unified it was um, Ericsson. Ericsson is a Swedish telecommunications company. So you can see the connection. Scandinavian leader unified Scandinavia. Scandinavian country unified this consortium. Uh, also, there's another scale where there's a lot, been a lot of activity in wireless. Between local area networks, building size, wide area networks, you know, nationwide, 
are what's called, or called metropolitan area networks, sort of the size of a campus or a neighborhood. And in that sort of range, there are also wireless technologies that are being developed relatively fast. Uh, one is broadband, that is providing internet connectivity or providing cable, wireless cable. It's an oxymoron, but it, it exists. Uh, and another, so that, that's, that's one area, and I'm not going to talk about that further. But another area that's very interesting is wireless local loop. Now, wireless local loop, in, in, tele, in telephony, the local loop is this copper wire that goes from your house to the branch exchange. And wireless local loop means take that, replace that copper wire with uh, a wireless link. Okay. Now, in the U.S., this is not a very popular idea because copper is in the ground everywhere. It's been there for a long time. It's amortized. It's basically free. And uh, the people who own it, say Verizon or uh, um, other local telephone uh, providers, are required by law to let other let their competitors use the copper. Okay. So there's really no incentive to put wireless local loop systems in the U.S. But in the developing world, there's a big incentive because it's quite expensive to put, to put copper infrastructure in today. And also, if you have a, a country where there are a lot of remote villages and so forth, it's very hard to put in uh, a, a traditional telephone service. So wireless local loop is basically uh, being seen as a way to bring telephone service to the developing world. There are a billion cellular subscribers plus. There are a billion wireline subscribers, and by and large, those are the same billion. They're not like two billion total. So that means there's four or five billion people who don't have telephone service in the world. And a lot of them, a lot of them don't have it because of cost. Okay, most of them don't have it because of cost. And wireless local loop is addressing that uh, need. Okay, so we see that there's a lot of growth in wireless, and this growth uh, brings about a lot of challenges. So what I want to do now is shift gears a little bit and talk about some of those challenges. And I'm going to talk about four things. I'm going to talk about technical challenges. And here I will talk about a few technical issues. Uh, then I'm going to talk about social, political, and economic challenges. Okay, well, let's talk about the technical challenges first. The main technical challenge is to provide the same service as wireline systems but with mobility. And that's really what the user cares about. Excuse me. To do this, though... Uh, requires some uh, technical innovation. And the main technical challenge areas are the ones I'm showing here. First of all, the main issue is greater capacity. You have more and more users for these kinds of services. They want higher data rates. That means you have to provide greater capacity. Um, networking is very important. Uh, it's very. You think about the cellular system, for example. 1.2 billion people distributed around the world, and they're mobile. So think about how hard it is to network that, get calls from place to place and so forth. Moreover, when you have multiple platforms, PDAs, computers, cell phones, other devices that have wireless, you also people also might like to have seamless connectivity from platform to platform. There's another sort of platform-based networking challenge. Um, Increasingly, as I mentioned before, wireless networks are becoming more than just voice networks. They're becoming data networks. Transmission of images, video, email, HTML files, and so forth. Uh, so that means that now uh, networks have to accommodate diverse media. And different media, that, the reason that's difficult is because different media have different so-called quality of service requirements. Uh, voice has, voice is, is low data rate 
uh, service. It has, it's very tolerant to errors, but it's very intolerant to delay, for example. Whereas some things, like email, again, uh, it's, 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 it's very low data rate. It's not tolerant at all to errors, but it's very tolerant of delay. Video requires very high data rate and is somewhat tolerant to delay. So the network, net, networks of the future, and even the ones now, have to divide up resources to accommodate all these different media. And it has to be done on the fly in real time as the services are demanded. Uh, another problem in wireless is the channel itself, the actual physical channel. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this later, so I won't say much here. But basically, the wireless channel is a very unfavorable place in which to communicate, particularly high-rate, uh, high-quality communication. And not only is it unfavorable, but it's also changing because of the mobility, because of the fact that it's an open medium and you have people entering and exiting the channel all the time. So anything you do to overcome the impairments in the channel has to be able to respond to changes in the channel. So it's, uh, it's a difficult problem, very challenging. Another challenge is portability. When you have a portable system, uh, of course, it's battery operated. And that means that uh, certain things are limited. For example, the amount of transmitter power that you can use is limited. And that causes other problems, which I'll talk about later. And then finally, a big problem in wireless is privacy and security. Because in wireline systems, of course, you have a much greater degree of security than you would in a wireless system, which is, again, an open medium. It's, it's uh, susceptible to eavesdropping. So in order to secure a wireless network, you have to use encryption. Okay. All right, so um, I'm going to talk more now about these two things, greater capacity and the physical channel. So first of all, the, the, there are basically four resources in wireless. There's bandwidth, which means radio spectrum. Okay, the radio spectrum is is, is the uh, sort of the commerce, the uh, place where the wireless commerce takes place. And bandwidth, uh, the radio spectrum is fixed. It's very tightly regulated, uh, and they're not making more of it. Okay, so any any radio spectrum that you use, you have to pay a lot for. So to use more bandwidth to provide additional capacity is a is a, an expensive proposition. Now, another resource is transmitter power. Transmitter power is also tightly constrained. At the mobile end, the portable end is constrained because it's battery operated. At the other end, say in the base station, it's constrained because of for environmental reasons. Okay, you can't just blast away at all at all power levels. So the resource there are the two other resources that are much better for getting capacity from. And these are called diversity and intelligence. So it's like, it's like universities. We like diversity and intelligence. <laughs> and um, diversity, and I'm going to say a little bit more what I mean about this in a minute, but it occurs naturally, uh, but also it can be created. Uh, again, I'll elaborate on this later. Uh, intelligence means basically processing power. Okay, And everybody knows about Moore's Law, which says that processing power doubles every 18 months. So processing power is something that we can expect to get a lot more of in the future. So let me talk about those two things now. Before I do, though, I want to just give a very, very short uh, tutorial on how a wireless system might work. Uh, most communication systems today are so-called digital communication systems, meaning that the information is uh, transmitted in the system in the form of ones and zeros. Okay? So, and, and almost all wireless systems are this way, too. Okay? And certainly all emerging systems are, are digital systems. So that means that whenever you, say, talk on your cell phone or have any other, try to communicate anything else, 
that, that has to be digitized. So when you talk on your cell phone, the cell phone actually digitizes your voice. And the procedure for doing that is actually very interesting, but I'm not going to have time to talk about it today. There's a lot of interesting stuff that goes on in there. But in the end, the cell phone produces a stream of zeros and ones that are representing your voice, and that, they, that needs to be transmitted across the so-called wireless channel. Now, that stream of zeros and ones is not suitable for direct transmission, so there's a device called a modulator that basically impresses the stream of zeros and ones onto another signal called a carrier that is suitable for transmission. So it basically creates a radio signal out of the stream of zeros and ones, goes out the antenna, zaps across the wireless channel to the receive antenna, uh, then the receiver at the other end does various things, including demodulation, undoing this process, and spits out the stream of zeros and ones that represented your voice. There's some uh, hardware and software that re reconstitutes the voice, and the person on the other end hears it. Now, I'm, I'm leaving out all the networking that goes in here, but that, this is just the basics of the sort of the um, physical part. Now, the wireless channel, as I said, is a very unfavorable place in which to communicate. And... Uh, I'll say a little bit about why in a second, but there, there are a lot of impairments, and I'm not going to go into all of these now, but two of them are particularly important. One is fading, and the other is interference. Now, the wireless channel, that is the actual physical medium, is called the physical layer. So uh, networks are organized in layers, and the bottom layer, where the rubber hits the road, is called the physical layer, and that means the ether, that is the, the, the place where you the radio waves propagate. And because it's out in, the, out in the real world, there are all kinds of things in there that cause uh, problems. And one of those problems is fading. Okay? Now, fading is the most significant impairment in wireless. And fading, the name fading is descriptive, actually, of what it means. Fading basically means that the, the characteristics of the channel, uh, the quality of the channel, if you will, depends on time, frequency, and space. So if you're talking on your cell phone, the quality of the link you get depends on where you are, what time it is, uh, and what frequency you're transmitting at. And this is basic, the physics of this is pretty simple. It's basically caused by multipath, that is reflection off of multiple objects, and mobility. A lot of what's done to design wireless systems is done to counteract fading. And the main way to counteract fading is diversity. So what does diversity mean? Well, diversity means here just what it means in, say, genetics or finance or investing. It means don't put all your eggs in one basket. So essentially, uh, what this means in wireless is you take the transmission and you spread it out over time, frequency, or space to counteract the fact that these are variable, that the channel is variable in those uh, quantities. So spreading over time is sometimes called error control coding. This is done in all wireless systems. Spreading over frequency is called spread spectrum. This is done in many modern wireless systems. For example, if you have a CDMA, so-called CDMA cell phone, if you have, for example, Verizon or Sprint, uh, they use CDMA, that's a spread spectrum phone. Wi-Fi systems use spread spectrum. They're countervening what's called frequency selective fading with that. Spa so these are, these are well-known techniques widely used. Spatial diversity is a more of an emerging technique, and I want to say just a little bit about that now. The basic, so spatial diversity actually occurs naturally in wireless channels. When you have multipath, that's spatial diversity, and if you can, you can actually exploit that in certain ways. But you can also create spatial diversity by putting multiple antennas at the transmitter and the receiver. If you do that, you can essentially create multiple independent channels 
in the same part of the radio spectrum. Okay, that means you can add more and more users or go at higher and higher rates just by adding more and more antennas. Okay, so this is a little bit like Archimedes with a lever. You know, Archimedes says if you give me a long enough lever and a place to stand, I'll move the world. And this is like that too. If you have enough antennas, at least in theory, you can create as much capacity as you want. Now, unfortunately, when you create diversity, it causes interference. Uh, because think about if you spread the spectrum out over, uh, if you spread the spectrum of your signal out, that is, you spread it out over frequency, there are going to be other users in there also doing the same thing. So you're going to have interference. If you use multiple antennas in the same spectrum, they're going to interfere with one another. Uh, also, greater user population, all this growth I've been talking about, causes, you know, causes more interference. There are more users out there. Uh, and higher data rates cause another kind of interference, so-called intersymbol interference. So the answer to interference is intelligence. And intelligence, again, means processing here. So intelligence comes in two uh, sort of varieties. One is so-called network-level intelligence, which is intelligence at above the physical layer. The use of intelligent control mechanisms to control the use of those physical layer resources. Okay, and this comes in a number of different uh, flavors, and I'm not going to talk about them now. Um, there's also so-called node-level intelligence, which means using intelligence at the, in the physical layer at the receiver. That is, making a more sophisticated receiver to counteract the interference. And here I'll just mention one of the major problems that people are looking at today in this, in this area. When you have an interference channel, it very greatly complicates the problem of demodulation. Uh, and in particular, demodulation is, is, is uh, uh, in an interference channel is uh, an element of a class of very hard computational problems called the NP-complete problems. Okay, this means they're very hard to compute, basically. Uh, and moreover, you can't just hand this problem off to a supercomputer and wait, because demodulation has to be done at the rate that the data is coming in. Okay, so that's 10,000 to 10 million times per second. So a lot of research is focused on reducing this complexity, making it more reasonable to try to do demodulation and interference channels. One technique for doing this is called turbo processing. Okay, and I'll just very briefly say what this is about. Uh, basically, turbo processing in, the, in, the, in this context means that you take the demodulation problem, it's a very hard problem, and you break it down into smaller problems that are much easier. Okay. And then you solve those problems successively, with each one providing essential input to the next. So this is not this is not parallel processing, where you just divide up into small problems, compute them off separately, and then recombine the results. This is more like uh, this is in succession, so it's more like a sequential kind of processing. Now it turns out, though, that the way the signals are structured in wireless channels, you can you can do this decomposition in such a way that you get very close to the optimal solution. That is very close to that very hard computational problem with dramatically lower complexity. And by dramatically lower, I, be, I mean essentially that a problem that was exponential in the product of several factors is now has the, that's the complexity, now has a complexity which is exponential in the, in the sum of the exponentials and the factors. So just to put that in perspective, if A, times B, if a B, and C are all 10, this is 2 to the, two to the 1,000, the very, very large number. That's the complexity. And these are all 2 to the 10th, a small number, and there are three of them. So the computational complexity is dramatically lower, and this comes about because of this so-called turbo processing. 
Okay, well, that's the end of the technical part of the discussion. Uh, I'm sure many are relieved. Uh, and I'd like to move on now to some uh, other issues. And I'm just going to talk briefly about some of these things. First of all, uh, some social issues. Uh, a lot of these are very familiar to people. They're, on the, you know, they're in the newspaper every day. Uh, but certainly there are a lot of debate. All of these actually have to do with cellular, it just so happens. But you know, there are a lot of debates about various aspects of cellular. For example, is it safe to drive when you're talking on your cell phone? You know, some states have banned that. Uh, you know, do cell phones cause cancer? There was a big debate about that in the 90s. This debate has largely diminished because cell phones now transmit at much lower powers than they did in those days. Um, another uh, issue is privacy. I already mentioned this issue about the being an open medium, and so security is an issue. But another issue that you might not be aware of surrounds something called E911. Now, when you, when you dial 911 from your house, um, the, op the emergency operator knows where you are. So all you have to do is say, I fell off the roof, and they send a, uh, an ambulance to your house. You don't have to tell them where you are. If you dial 911 from your cell phone, they don't know where you are. Okay? They know that you're in a cell, but that's several square miles. So they don't know how to get to you with an ambulance. So the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, has uh, issued a requirement that cellular service providers uh, put together technology so that they can locate their subscribers very accurately within 100 or 200 feet. So if you call 911 on your cell phone, then they know where you are. So from for the point of view of an emergency service, this is very good. But from the point of view of privacy, this is a really an unprecedented type of invasion of privacy because now the t this phone company can know where you are all the time. Uh, so there's going to be a lot. This is now just coming out, E911. It's, it's, it's was supposed to be out by now, but there have been technical hurdles that haven't been settled. So in the next few years, this is going to happen, and there are going to be, I think, a lot of be a lot of debates about how this information can be used. Uh, well, etiquette. Everybody knows how annoying it is. Uh, you know, the cell, cell cell industry is only 15 years or so old. Uh, you know, the etiquette certainly haven't been worked out yet. Even old technologies like ordinary telephones and, and cars, uh, there's still a lot to be uh, uh, desired in, in etiquette. So I don't expect that cell phones are going to be much different. Uh, and uh, let me just move on. Environmentally, of course, you know, everybody wants good coverage, but nobody wants a cell tower near their house. Uh, that's a social issue. There are also a lot of political issues in cellular, or in, in, in general in wireless, but in particular in cellular. Um, two of them are standardization and the radio spectrum. Now, standardization has to do with the, uh, the fact that in technologies like cellular phones that are used by many people, uh, the industry issues standards, meaning that people can read the standard, make a phone according to that standard, and it should operate with other phones. Okay. Uh, but worldwide, there are many standards for cellular. In fact, in the U.S., there are many standards for cellular. So Singular uses a different standard from Verizon, for example. So for this, this is a, there's a big problem with portability from system to system. And the reason there are all so many different standards is that there's a lot of money involved. And so every company that develops a technology would like that to become a standard. And that's a big political issue. Uh, so... This problem is not being solved very well. Technically, it's not that hard to solve, but politically, it's a very hard problem. Another political issue is the radio spectrum. There's been a lot of in the press recently about various aspects of this problem or this issue. Uh, first of all, it's, it's believed that the public owns the radio spectrum. It's part of the common. 
And so the government allocates it. The government controls how it's used. So one question is, how should it be allocated? Currently, the spectrum is allocated by uh, auction in most cases. That is, the highest bidder gets the spectrum. In some, some countries, though, the spectrum is allocated by, based on what's called a beauty contest. That is, they look for the, the company that will provide the best service. So that's a political question. How should that be done? And that's uh, another issue. Also, even once you've allocated the spectrum, there, you know, there are conflicts because it's a finite resource. There are government uses of the spectrum and their commercial uses. How should it be divided? Uh, in the com among the commercial uses, there's more than one type of, ser type of service. There's broadcasting and there's telephony, for example. They're in the, actually the same part of the spectrum, so they're always bumping heads to try to see who can get some more spectrum for the other, from the other one. So there are a lot of political issues. There are also economic issues, one of which uh, sort of follows along with this idea about the radio spectrum being a public resource or part of the common. Who should profit from the radio spectrum? You know, this is a lot like the questions that were asked in the Old West about the grazing rights. Should the sheep farmers or should the cattle ranchers have the grazing rights? Uh, it's the same kind of question we have about national forests. Should they be for recreation or should they be for logging? And the radio spectrum is another resource. It's very abstract, but it's, it's there. It's a resource that the public owns, and somebody's deciding how it's going to be used. Okay. Uh, another issue, uh, economic issue, is whether telecommunications should be a private or a public endeavor. In this country, it's a private endeavor. Uh, you, know, it's, it's, you have private companies for telephone companies. In some parts of the world, it's public. Uh, and there are advantages and disadvantages to both. It's a big economic issue in, in uh, wireless. Another issue uh, in wireless of particular interest right now is hyper-competition uh, in the cellular business. And what this means is that there, there are really too many competitors in the marketplace. Uh, what's happening is the revenues, the demand, of course, is increasing. I showed you that already. The revenues are increasing. It looks great in terms of revenues, but the margins are decreasing. So that means that it's harder and harder for cellular companies to make money, and it's partly because of this hyper-competition. One day Verizon offers 1,000 minutes for $40. The next day Singular offers 1,200 minutes for $40. It just goes on and on. And many people think there are just too many cellular providers in this company, their country. There are six now, major ones. Ten years ago there were 12. Uh, and many people think in five years there's going to be maybe three. Okay, And this may end this problem. Another problem is... Capital markets, um, just like in the dot-com bubble, there's, there was also a telecom bubble, okay, followed right along. In, fa in fact, it's partly the same bubble, okay, because a lot of telecom supports the Internet, okay. Now, uh, you know, of course, who knows what caused this? I mean, there are many, you know, there's a lot of mass psychology involved. But the bottom line is that it makes it very hard for telecom companies to, to get access to capital because of this, uh, this bubble. So that causes problems with, you know, building out systems, innovation, and so forth. And I already mentioned the developing world, so I think I'll pass that here. Okay, so I have about uh, ten more minutes, and I think I'd like to spend it talking a little bit about what's next, okay? And uh, before I do that, I'll start out talking about where, trying to put things in context of where we came from, okay, how we got to where we are now. And there were, in the 19th century, there were four inventions that eventually became major uh, sort of wireless activities. Uh, the first one was the telegraph, uh, which became the first wireless activity. The wireless telegraph, Marconi, this is Marconi, uh, is associated with that. 
Um, and so it took about, what is that, about 50 years to go from the telegraph, this was Morse, to the wireless telegraph, Marconi. Sound recording, well, that was Edison, uh, was we, from sound recording we eventually got radio, you know, 50, 40, 50 years later. Motion pictures, this is the Lumieres, uh, you know, late 19th century. Television was first commercially available in 1936, so about 40 years to get from motion pictures to television. To get from telephone, of course, Bell invented the phone in 1876. To get from the telephone to cellular took almost a century. In fact, it really took more than a century. Now, there were, there were wireless phones before this in the 40s, 50s, and so forth, but it really wasn't until cellular came out with its advantages that telephony became, wireless telephony became widespread. Then, of course, in the 20th century, the late 20th century, the big communications innovation was the web. Okay, the web browser was invented 10 years ago. And uh, now what's happening in wireless is that this is going wireless as well. Okay, so when we try to ask what's next, the first thing we notice is we don't know what's down here to be invented to go wireless next. Okay, so it's really hard to say what's next. But one thing that we can say is that things are certainly going to get smaller and cheaper. Okay, and this is basically because of Moore's Law. And if you propagate forward with Moore's Law, uh, you'll see that, just doing some simple calculations, you'll see that, assuming it holds up for the next three decades, you'll see that something that costs a million dollars today will cost, in 20 years, will cost a hundred dollars, and in 30 years will cost a dollar. And also it'll be a lot, lot smaller. Okay, so we can expect more and more sophisticated devices being cheaper and cheaper and smaller and smaller. So one of the things that that implies, or one of the things that that's actually already starting to imply, is a convergence of computing and communications. Uh, and I'll start out just by pointing your attention to this, gra this graphic over here. Uh, and look at the U what this shows is the market penetration of PCs, that is these computers, and the market penetration of cell phones in various parts of the world. In the U.S., there, there are many more PCs, or there, there are a number more PCs than there are cell phones. More than 60% market penetration for PCs, 50% for cell phones. So we're used to thinking about the computer as being a more common kind of consumer electronics device than the cell phone in this country. But in most of the world, that's not the, tr not the case at all. For example, look at Italy. The difference is very dramatic there. There are very few PCs relative to the number of cell phones. At the same time, smaller and cheaper. The cell phones are getting more and more sophisticated. So that means that computing is starting to migrate into communications, meaning into cellular and other kind of wireless communications. So you already see things like smartphones, which are cell phones uh, that are essentially computing platforms. They have processors in them. Um, you see from the, coming from the other end, the PDA, uh, you know, palm-top computer, is starting to become a communications device. You know, most PDAs now at least have some email. Some of them even have cell phones in them. So these are converging from both ends into sort of a common space. Now, this hasn't really escaped the attention of the PC industry at all. Microsoft is uh, very aggressively moving into software for cell phones now. Uh, just last month, there was a big wireless meeting in Cannes in France. Uh, Microsoft announced a whole host of new agreements with various cell phone manufacturers. This is, uh, there's a big battle royal looming here between Microsoft and Nokia, which is the big incumbent in the cell phone software industry. So that's something interesting to watch. Also, 
aside from cellular, there's also sort of a convergence of computing and communications. Intel has just recently announced that they're going to integrate Wi-Fi into their processors. So that means that they clearly view communications and computing as part of the same technology. Now, to support this kind of convergence requires a different kind of a communication system than we have now. And the sort of the next thing in cellular is what's called 3G, third generation cellular. And the basic idea of 3G is to produce higher data rate systems, systems that can communicate at higher data rates than current systems. And in addition to telephone switching, which we have now in the cellular system, add internet routing. So you got a switch and a router, okay, in, in, the, in your cellular system. Uh, and from, when you have all these ingredients, you can start doing what is called mobile multimedia communication. That is, you can communicate all media that you already communicate over the internet to your cell phone. Okay. So this graphic is just illustrates that. Uh, I'll just briefly go over it. This is mobility versus data rate. So here, there, you know, these are things that are sitting still. These are sort of slow route moving things. These are cars. Okay. And these are data rates: 20 kilobits per second up. Uh, on up. Uh, and existing cellular systems are so-called 2G systems, second generation systems, and they basically provide low data rate with high mobility. Now the other extreme are fixed systems, that is wireline systems like Ethernet, DSL, and so forth. And they provide a, a range of data rates, some of them very high, but without any mobility. Okay? Now Wi-Fi, this you know, monobatic computing, provide high, high data rates with sort of slow mobility, basically nomadic. You can take it with you, but you can't take it in your car and compute. Uh, so 3G is trying to fill in this plane a little bit. It's putting higher data rates with high mobility. Okay, now 3G is already standardized. It's already rolled out in Japan. It's rolled out in parts of Europe. It hasn't rolled out in the U.S. yet, but it's already been put together. People aren't really working on it anymore. What people are working on, by people I mean researchers, what researchers are working on now is, is so-called 4G, that is the next thing, filling in up here, very high data rates with mobility. And there's a lot of interesting technologies in there that I'm not going to have time to talk about today. Um, another concept in, uh, in providing high-quality multimedia communications on the move is something called info stations. So, by the way, um, so the mantra here is anytime, anywhere, right? This is the mantra of, this, of the wireless world. And with 3G, you add this anything because it's multimedia. Now, the, the mantra of info stations is many time, many where. So the idea is, rather than trying to provide pervasive coverage or ubiquitous coverage, you provide coverage only in small uh, areas, okay? But there you provide very, very high quality coverage. So you have small separated cells, so they might be at places like toll booths, entrances to buildings, uh, in airports, places like that. Uh, and when, when you drive by one of these or walk by one of these, you get your computer or your whatever gets a very your, your, whatever device you're using gets a very brief connection at a very high data rate. So it takes a big gulp of data, and then you move on and you don't have any connectivity for a while until you get to the next info station, and then you get another big gulp of data, and in between you process that data, whatever way. So this is basically like a Wi-Fi system with roaming, okay, and with higher data rate and with mobility. Okay, so it's the same idea as Wi-Fi, but uh, more supercharged. Now, I noticed uh, in the paper this morning there was an announcement that Intel has put together a group of companies that are starting to offer 
Wi-Fi with roaming in, in South Asia. So this is already starting. This is a, not as far, far along. It's not as well developed as 3G, but the ideas are already starting to come into some practical systems. Okay, uh, one other thing. Uh, this is not, doesn't relate so much to the convergence of computing and communication, but this is another thing that's uh, also being developed very rapidly now. Excuse me. And that's sensor networks. Now, I mentioned at the beginning these three kinds of networks, telephone, computer, and broadcast. There's another kind of network that I didn't mention, which is a so-called ad hoc network. There aren't many really uh, sort of well-known examples of that. But basically, an ad hoc network is a network without infrastructure. There's no backbone. It's just a network of communicating uh, devices that communicate peer-to-peer. They don't, they don't go to a base station through a network and back down. They just communicate peer-to-peer. So, if, for example, if this uh, node wants to communicate with that node, it's got it's to get, get its traffic through the network through some other nodes. Okay? So this is called an ad hoc network. It's like, it's like a gossip network. Okay? It's like that. So a sensor network is basically an ad hoc network where the nodes, that is these communicating devices, are wireless sensors. So a sensor is just something that measures something. Okay, so it could be a seismic sensor, a chemical sensor, temperature, humidity, or what have you. Okay, these kind of networks are being studied very uh, vigorously right now in the research community. Uh, one example is uh, so-called smart dust. Smart dust is a sensor network, refers to a sensor network, in which the sensors, the, the nodes, are very, very small. They're, sometimes they're called moats. Okay. And on this, say this is an example, you can see how small it is here. And on this sensor, on this device, there's a sensor, there's a computer. It's a very small computer, runs something called TinyOS. And there's, uh, there's computing, okay? I mean, there's communication. So this one has optical communication, okay? But there are, there are communication devices as well. So the idea with smart dust is you could take 1,000 or 10,000 of these and just drop them in someplace, and they can start sensing and then start, you know, using this ad hoc networking, start sending the data back to some centralized database. So you could use it for climate monitoring. You could use it for homeland defense, detecting biological agents. Uh, there are many applications for these kinds of things. Well, there are many, many emerging technologies, and if I had more time, I could talk about them at, at, at infinitum. But um, let me just mention a couple. Here's, here's a sort of a list of them, and I want to mention a couple of them briefly. Uh, one is telematics. This is very interesting uh, in that uh, it's the, the concept, the basic concept of telematics is you think about your car as being a node on the Internet. So if you have mobile multimedia communications, your car can immediately have the same kind of service as, you, as any uh, sort of node on the Internet. You can have transfer all kinds of files and media and so forth. So this has a lot of obvious applications. I mean, certainly you could use it to download content from the, unit, uh, from the Internet while you're driving. But it can also be used for other things. For example, your car could uh, transmit diagnostic data back to, say, the dealer, and the dealer could evaluate it and maybe send you an email when you need to come in for service, for example, that kind of thing. Um, another interesting technology is uh, RFID, radio frequency ID. So RFID is like barcoding, it's like radio barcoding, okay? And RFID technology is actually not that new. The technology is the same that you, that you see in EasyPass or prox cards that let you into buildings. That's RFID. But the, the idea here is that you would have very cheap radio tags 
that could be put onto all objects of interest. So you could use it, put it on cereal boxes, you could put it on cattle, put it on whatever, so that you can keep inventory and track them just by scanning with a wireless uh, scanner. Okay, well, now, I haven't really gone much out on a limb here. Most of the things I've told you about as what's next are actually things that are either already happening or they're going to happen. There's not much uh, question about it. But what about much later? What about 10 years, 20 years down the road? Well, before I comment on that, I'd like to just, you know, review a few quotes of other people who've tried to do similar things. Um, and the first one comes from the very beginning of, you know, telecom. Um, when Bell invented the Stu pointed this out to me, by the way. Bell invented the telephone in 1876, and the you know the British Post Office uh, decided to evaluate it. They hired some experts, and uh, the experts got together and they said, "Well, the telephone may be appropriate for our American cousins." There's a lot of disdain in that, isn't there? Uh, but not here, meaning in Britain, because we have an adequate supply of messenger boys. Uh, another sort of famous quote is from Thomas Watson, who was the founder of IBM. The digital computer was developed in the 1940s, and uh, Watson believed that there might be a market for maybe five of them. Uh, you know, again, in the 70s, the microprocessor was invented. Ken Olson, co-founder of digital equipment, uh, you know, this was when people realized you could make a small computer and put it on your desk. Uh, he didn't believe anybody would want one in their home. Uh, now, more to the point, uh, in cellular, you know, cellular first rolled out in the early 80s. Uh, about 1982 was when the FCC allocated the spectrum. Uh, and so AT&T, who had developed a lot of the uh, technology, wanted to know whether they should go into the wireless business. So they commissioned a study from McKinsey. And McKinsey figured that uh, in their report, they said, well, maybe uh, we don't think there will really be more than one million wireless subscribers by the end of this century. And, of course, I already told you there, was a, there were a billion. So this, my understanding is that this was their highball estimate as well. They had others that were more embarrassing, but I don't know what they were. And then finally, this one's a little hard to, uh, to read, but I, I thought it was very appropriate for the current economic times. This is a, from an article in the Financial Times that was written in September of 92 on the occasion of the rollout of so-called GSM mobile communications. Now, GSM is one of those standards that I told you about that's used for t cellular telephony. Uh, and basically what the Financial Times said was uh, the original enthusiasm for the concept appears to have evaporated. Uh, the economy has sunk into recession. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And the need for heavy investment has scared many. Okay, now, this was very pessimistic about GSM. Now, today... Ten years later, GSM is the largest cellular standard in the world. It has 70% of the market, and uh, there are 800 million GSM subscribers. So what's after that? You just have to wait and see. I'm not about, I'm not about to make predictions based on that. So thank you.
political, social, economic, technological issues. I'm wondering, A, what your sense is of the psychological implications of a lot of this, and B, what other people have said about it. Yeah, that's a very good question, and actually I'm afraid I don't know the answer. But, I mean, clearly the idea that communications has become mobile, something you take with you, has a psychological effect on people. But I, I really don't know. I don't know anything about that. I actually, actually have never read anything, but certainly it's a very interesting uh, idea. Yeah, there, I mean, there are clearly some things like that. Yeah. Right, I mean, it gives you freedom, but it takes freedom away. It's like many technologies has, have two sides. Yeah. Yes? Well, the thing, one thing is, if you look at, um, if you look at what's so-called teledensity, which means the penetration of telecom uh, versus gross domestic product per capita, it's almost a straight line. In other words, uh, rich companies, countries have high, you know, GDP per capita. They have high teledensity. Poor countries, the other way around. And uh, you know, of course, there's not necessarily a causal relationship. I mean, it's probably more likely that the, the, one of the first things people buy is a phone. When they, when they become prosperous. And in some part, I just read the other day that in, in I think it's Nigeria, uh, that the growth rate in cellular is very high. And this is a place where I think the monthly wage or the weekly wage or the daily wage, I can't remember exactly the, the unit, is, is a dollar. Okay, so in other words, wh wh whichever one of those scales it in, it's a very low wage. But yet, yet people still, they want to have this, you know. So, um, you know, I can't really say what, what is a causal effect between telecoms and economic prosperity, but certainly they go hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, in you know the tech, battery technology is improving all the time. I mean, just like other technologies, but it's not the same and not on the same scale as, for example, Moore's law, which is you know an exp very aggressive exponential improvement. The capacity is you know trying to grow very rapidly. Battery power sort of grows much, battery uh, capabilities grow much more slowly. So it becomes more and more a limitation. So these things I was mentioning, like greater intelligence, uh, you know, things that make the receiver more sensitive without having the transmitter use more battery power, those things are much better solutions than trying to increase the battery power. I mean, now the battery power is really the main limitation, I mean, if you, if you get down to an importable device. Yeah, there's a question up there. Yes. Uh, I was wondering, given the G2 technology and the G3 technology, what kind of first products could you be seeing in the market using that specific technique? With sensor nets? Um, well, uh, you know, this is, a lot of this is not really productized yet. I mean, it's more research-oriented. But um, you might see sensor nets for things like weather, uh, you, know, more, you know, more sort of global kinds of things like weather prediction, where you drop sensors in. Uh, maybe the atmosphere, or just drop them out in remote areas and try to get get weather data. So it's not really consume, a consumer type application. Uh, for consumer type applications, or at least more personal applications, you know, a lot, there are a lot of medical applications of sensor networks. You know, putting sensors on people and trying to collect data that way. So you probably, as far as something that would touch you personally, that you might actually see and, and touch, it would probably be something along those lines. Yeah. So Phil. And, uh, 
next generation, there's uh, CDMA. China's coming up with PDS CDMA. Then there's WPDMA. Will there ever be standardization? And uh, what's going to determine that national politics, economics? Well, you know, standardization is largely driven by politics, as you, you probably know, Phil. I mean, the, the thing is that, um, you know, the, the companies that uh, make standards, uh, sorry, the companies that d invent technology and own the intellectual property, of course, would like to see people buy it. And so if their technology is adopted in a standard, then they're, they're doing fine. If somebody else's technology is adopted in a standard, then, in a standard, then they're, uh, they're just out of luck. So usually there are national interests involved. I mean, you know, the big telecom companies, there's, there's Docomo in Japan, and there's in Qualcomm, say, in Lucent in the U.S. There's Ericsson and Nokia in, in Europe. And so these standardization bodies have a very strong nationalistic uh, bent because they would like for their, to be sure that they're not left out. And so I don't really see a lot of hope for, you know, global standardization. It was one of the goals of 3G, actually, was to pr produce a single global standard. But as you said, there are already three standards. And uh, I think more likely what we'll see happening is that there will remain, there will continue to be multiple standards, but the phones will become multi-standard phones. I mean, already you, you see that. You can get a phone that you can use in the U.S. and Europe, for example. Uh, it's just a little more expensive. So uh, I think that more likely the technology will just eventually, you know, things will get smaller and cheaper. You'll be able to put all the standards on the same phone, and, uh, and that'll be that. You know, I mean, another another sort of thing that people talk about is so-called software radio, where the processor in your phone is fast enough that it can actually run the demodulator in software. And if that happens, then you could basically you could have a phone that was sort of blank, and whenever you went into a, a given region, you know, the base station would download the software for that particular area, and then it wouldn't really matter. It'd be the, it would basically be, you know. Standard independent. You could have a phone that just had a processor in it. So, good question. Yeah, question. A question about biological applications. Uh, if you were to track a software from Canada to Argentina, uh, what via the cellular network can you do that? Track a what? Excuse me? A songbird. Oh, a songbird. Oh, by cellular, I don't know. But, uh, you know, someone, there's someone in the university here who is working on a problem like that, using, putting some kind of radio uh, tag on uh, migrating birds and collecting uh, data. Actually, my colleague, Margaret Martinosi, sitting there, uh, she's working on something called ZebraNet, which, in which you, uh, you know, basically put uh, radio uh, equipment on zebras that collect uh, positioning data, temperature data, and so forth. It's an ad hoc network. It transmits the data back, and you can use it to track the pattern, you know, the, the habits of zebras. So there are all kinds of things you can do. Putting something on a, a bird is very difficult just because of the weight. And the range is pretty pretty high, but there are some very uh, sort of elementary things that people are doing like that. Yeah, yeah. Question there. Oh, okay. It's uh, Verizon, <laughs> Motorola, made in the USA. So, Jim. Hand crank. You know. Yeah, I, I've see, actually, there was something just very recently in the paper, I think in uh, uh, Laos or someplace, where the villagers are using, uh, you know, bicycles to crank their cell phones. You know, they get, you know like a, yeah, exactly, or wind up, okay, yeah. So, I mean, you can have it, but do you really want it? <laughs> yeah.
you want one? Okay, well, I'll, I'll show you the article. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's a good that's a good question. I mean, uh, certainly uh, it, it, it's probably will not disappear. I mean, one of the things about the wired telephone network is it's extremely reliable. Okay, and the wire you know wireless is not quite there for reliability, and also uh, it's not quite there for voice quality. I mean, the quality in the wire wireline network is higher quality. With wireless, you have an issue that uh, you have to compress the voice, you have to squeeze out the redundancy to preserve. You know, to to, to use uh, less resources, radio resources to transmit it. So I, I don't know that wireline will disappear, but certainly the revenue. You know, you saw that chart where the wireline is going down in long distance, and uh, certainly uh, that's a trend. I mean, that's that's definitely happening now. When it'll happen, I I really don't want to speculate. We'll have to wait and see. <laughs> My standard answer. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Good question. This building is wireless. The E-Quad is wireless as of last week, I think. The friend said... Yes, Rob. Okay. I'm sorry. I, the wrong... Yes, the wrong person. Sorry. <laughs> One last question. Yes, bye, Bob. I'd like to talk about the flip side, which nobody seems to talk about. Uh, what is the susceptibility of all of the stuff you're talking about to a big electromagnetic pulse? Oh, that's a good question. It's a good question. I mean, I would guess that not only, in that case, not only wireless systems, but wireline systems are, are vulnerable as well. I mean, a big electromagnetic pulse comes, and it basically fries all the switches, fries all the routers, uh, fries everything. Uh, except an abacus. Okay, and, and, and Jim, no, but Jim will still be, uh, you know, pedaling away. So... Thank you. Thank you.